and welcome to Overdressed and Underqualified, a podcast where we talk about first job stuff. Today, Liv and I had the pleasure of talking with Scott Dickers, the founder of U.S. satirical newspaper, The Onion. I hope you guys enjoy. Awesome. Liv, you want to you wanna take it away? Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to Brayden and I and collectively or fellowship, I think for the third time. Um, we really appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we can just dive right in. So Brayden and I are really interested in just starting from starting from the beginning. We would love if you could tell us a little bit about maybe what it was like growing up. I think you mentioned sort of your your spontaneous personality to us on one of our other talks. Um, and we're really interested in how that maybe shaped kind of who you are today. And also, if we get there, um, maybe how that contributed to your journey to The Onion. Sure. I will try to psychoanalyze myself to such a degree <laughs> that I can figure out what about my childhood maybe me like I am now. But I uh, met someone once, a good friend of mine for many years, who told me that his mother wouldn't let him cross the street until he was 12. And that really struck me because my parents were very hands off. So when I was like in kindergarten and first grade, I would just roam around the city and just explore on my own. Like all day I'd be gone and I would uh, walk for miles. I'd be in bare feet and I just looked like a homeless urchin. And I think I had this sense of freedom, like I could do anything. And I must have had secure attachment with my parents because I was never afraid that, you know, they didn't care or anything. And you know, I got into a lot of trouble because I really didn't get a lot of guidance. It was just like kind of a sink or swim style of parenting. And I fell into comedy. That's kind of a separate story as just my way of making sense of the world and getting along with people. I was very shy. I didn't make friends easily. And I was bullied a lot. And a lot of times kids like that will turn to comedy because it makes people like you and they stop picking on you. So those two things in combination, I think led me to a life of trying to come up with comedy all the time to make people like me and feeling unconstrained by any kind of rules or guidance. So I would do whatever I wanted to. I would make a comedy book. I made my first comedy book when I was, I think, four. My mom taught me how to read and write before kindergarten, and I still have a copy of this book. I mean, it's like a book of jokes that I wrote. I was four years old and they're all, they're terrible jokes, but, uh, I made a copy, stapled these pieces of paper together and, and I would show it to people and they would be impressed. And I liked that. And I made little skits on tape recorders constantly, like always making comedy. I performed, I did any kind of comedy in any medium I could. And my dream was to make it on film. So I got a Super 8 camera in high school and I made movies. Those were really expensive and like big productions. It's very hard to keep financing those. We, we had no money, but I didn't feel constrained at all. And I just wanted to get my comedy out there in any possible way that I could. And so when I got out of high school, I was hit with the reality of, you know, how do you make money at this? Because it was really the only thing I was interested in. So I had a series of pretty crappy minimum wage type jobs while I worked on trying to build a comedy career. And that is ultimately what led to the creation of The Onion. 
what was, um, this is probably going a little off subject out of those jobs you were just doing to stay afloat. What was your least favorite? And did you learn anything that looking back on it, you wouldn't have changed it. It kind of formed you into the person you are and it formed the onion into what it is. There were so many like embarrassing moments. Like I, I was a janitorial work, a lot of janitorial work at schools at a center for developmentally disabled people. I, speaking of developmentally disabled, I got a job washing dishes at a restaurant and my supervisor was a developmentally disabled guy who set me up to wash dishes. And I, my hands got burned from the water. It was so hot. It was my first day. And I was like, oh, that water's hot. And he laughed out loud. And he said, ah, your, your skin is still tender. Give it time. And I, I didn't come back to that job, actually. That was the last day on that job. I thought, nah, that's too much. And, you know, I cleaned crap off the bathroom stalls at McDonald's. It was a McDonald's right by the um, stadium in Madison, Wisconsin, where they had the Badger games. And I would work early Sunday morning. So Saturday night, all the drunk sports fans would come in and uh, just crap all over the place. So yeah, there were some, there were some pretty bad ones. Some were just funny. Like I worked in a a factory that packaged butter. You know, this is Wisconsin. It's a dairy state. And there was a big vat of butter in the center of the factory and tubes that carried it to all these different packages. It was all exactly the same butter. One was Land O'Lakes. One was this, one was that. And it's so funny. I go in the grocery store now and there's all these different butters and they all have different prices. And I'm like, it's the same butter. (laughs) What are they doing? But yeah, that's uh, that's a couple of them. That's funny. That's a good tip, though, especially for all of our listeners, because we're definitely, uh, you know, conscious about what we're spending. So we're definitely have to go with like the great value or Kroger brand or whatever it is. But totally go with the generic if you don't care. (laughs) If you if you care about quality, then you got to get the Kerrygold butter because that's actually from grass fed cows in Ireland. It's the only kind of butter that's different. That's some fancy butter. That's my that's my (laughs) diet tip for today. I'm never buying Land O'Lakes again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's nothing but GMO cows, you know, pumped full of hormones and uh, antibiotics. When you were first starting out with the onion, it was originally two guys that were kind of like doing something similar and then you bought it off them, right? Kind of. So I was doing a comic strip in Madison and I did really well with my comic strip and was making a full-time living doing that and also doing voice work for radio commercials and cartoons and stuff and all from Madison. And so, yeah, these two guys wanted to start a college humor magazine and they approached me because I was kind of like, the big comedy guy in Madison, they want to be involved. And so I jumped right in with them before the magazine existed and helped them plan it and come up with ideas for it. And I drew a bunch of cartoons for them. And I became kind of de facto editor at issue three. They did the first two issues. It was a newspaper, like a weekly newspaper that they printed called The Onion. And by issue three, I was, I would come in, I would spend all week there and I would edit the stories and I would come up with the jokes and write them. And, and I did that for about a year until they sold it to me. How old were you when that happened? Let's see. I would have been 23, 
24, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, well, so that, yeah, that's, that's basically our, our audience right there. Yeah. And so the, the tip is put yourself out there. Like if there's an, a field you want to work in, start doing work in that field, do any kind of work you can so that you're on the radar because that's how you expose yourself to opportunity. And it's, it, I never would have gotten the opportunity to work at the onion if I hadn't been doing all the other comedy that I was doing, if I hadn't succeeded at doing a comic strip and, and got noticed by them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good tip. And this kind of leads us into our next question as, as the onion was gaining popularity or even in its early stages, was there ever a point where you were working on it and you were just like, this was fun. This was great, but this is definitely not going to take off. I need to find something else to do. Or was it just guns blazing? This is going to work. Uh, I, I, I'm going to die trying if it doesn't work. One of those deals. I'm usually a pretty forward thinking person, but I didn't have a lot of visions about like how big the onion might become. I never imagined it would be as big as it was. For me, it was making money. Like we sold enough local advertising to cover the printing cost and to pay ourselves a little bit of money. We all had other jobs, you know, it wasn't, nobody was getting rich off the onion and circulation kept increasing and people seemed to like it. So it seemed like a good business model. It seemed like a going concern. And so at no point was I like, ah, this is all stupid. I want to quit. There were times though, when I felt really burned out and I would take a break to do something else. I took a break in the mid nineties to make a movie, took a break in the early nineties after I appointed a lieutenant to do most of the day-to-day editing. And I literally just played pool for a year. It's all I did. That was a good year. And then I took a couple of other breaks later on. And so my history at The Onion is kind of like, I work there, I'm the editor for a few years, and then I disappear for a couple of years. And then I come back for a few more years and I disappear and I come back. So I always sort of get bored with doing The Onion and then I come back and I kind of mix things up and I'll create new things. So first time I came back, we did a big redesign and changed The Onion from this wacky college humor magazine into more of the newspaper parody that it is today. Second time I came back, uh, I brought in a whole bunch of new staff and we did a bunch of new exciting things. We did our first book, which became a big bestseller. It's called Our Dumb Century. And that really put us on the map. We went online, which was really big for us, increased our readership by a factor of about a trillion overnight, which was pretty amazing. Then the time after that, I came back, we started doing video on The Onion, which we had never done before. And in between there, we did The Onion radio news. That was a thing we had going for a long time where we would do kind of a radio version of The Onion with this very square sounding newscaster and we'd send it around to radio stations all over the country. That was really fun. Wow. I don't want to let this tidbit you said go. Um, You played pool for a year as one of your disappearing acts. I did. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Like, do you remember how you felt during that year or how you decided just to take such a legitimate break? Yeah, I think every everybody needs a break and normal people get a break like every weekend or if they're a teacher, they get a break every summer. You know, every different job has their own built in breaks. And if you're a professional comedy writer, you're in the Writers Guild of America and they mandate breaks. So if you work on like The Tonight Show, you'll work for a few weeks and you'll get a couple weeks off. 
at the onion, we had no union, we had no breaks. We just put out a newspaper every week and it was constant work. Like you're just constantly chasing a deadline and trying to come up with funny stuff. And it really is draining. You just can't, the mind can't continue to do that. And I had been doing it for, you know, three or four years at that point without a break. And before that, I was doing my comic strip for a year. And I continued doing my comic strip and one other comic strip during the early years of The Onion. So I was completely drained. And yeah, I just needed to like take it easy and be like a, a retiree for a year. And it was fun because I would I would bring the people on my writing staff to play pool with me. So we'd have like informal meetings at pool. Then they would go back to the office and I would keep playing pool. And yeah, that was good. That was fun times. I, I kept doing my comics during that. So, sorry, I forgot to mention that. The comics didn't really take that much time. I could do all my comics for the week in a few hours. Yeah, that was actually my question was if you still had other jobs at the time of working on stuff. Yeah, well, during that time, I also had a job at the local National Public Radio affiliate station in Madison. But that was a super easy job. I worked, I started out like answering phones for the call-in shows, but then I graduated to working night shifts where you just played tape. Like for an hour, you'd play a syndicated show and then you'd have to read some underwriter credits at the top of the hour. So it was like having nothing but free time. I'd do an eight hour shift and it was literally like eight hours of work time where for two minutes at the top of every hour, I'd have to read, you know, this programming is brought to you by such and such foundation. That was it. And that's, uh, so I did a ton of work there. I drew my cartoons at the radio station. That was a great job. You have a really good voice for those programming oh, intros. <laughs> thank you. So you mentioned having informal meetings kind of at the pool table. And that made me right. think about I'm just wondering if you have a favorite or most productive sort of creative session. Um, it could have been one instance or things that you like to consistently do where you find bring out the most creative ideas in you or your team. Yeah, I, I don't really get superstitious about that sort of thing. To me, it's all nose to the grindstone. There have been times when I've had really productive meetings, but I think it's just been happenstance. One time, the first writer I ever hired, Rich Dom, and I stayed up all night one night at the Onion office and came up with enough headlines to last us to fill our front page for like six months. And that was huge because front page ideas were kind of the commodity. Like, can you think of an idea funny enough to go on the front page of a comedy newspaper? That felt great. And we were just doped up on Coca-Cola and pizza <laughs> all night. Yeah. So now, like I haven't been at The Onion for a few years, but just having the weekly Onion meetings and having everybody in a room and being able to go over the short list of ideas that people came up with, that always is very energizing and very productive to have all those heads together talking about what ideas work and why. Those are, those are really good. And now just working on my own, I find the morning hours are best for me creatively. Like I'm at my best, I'm sharpest. And I used to work all the time and I used to be a night owl. So I would work, you know, till three, four in the morning and then sleep till 10 and just go right back in. But now I've changed all that based on the advice of a nutritionist who insisted that I go to bed at 10 o'clock. She said, you cannot be staying up till three or four because the human body has circadian rhythm and you have to be in tune with light and dark or you're really messing up your, your health. Your adrenals are going nuts. So for the past month or so, I've been going to sleep religiously at 10. I get up around five or six. And those first few hours are just golden. I write so much and I get so much done and I'm so clear headed because nobody else is awake. So nobody else is bothering me and I, I can really focus 
were were those all night sessions the one in particular where you said that you you probably came up with about six months worth of headlines was that when you came up with what you told us was your your favorite onion headline i forgot which one i told you was my favorite but no that was not that was earlier Oh, okay. I remember a couple of the headlines from that meeting. I think one of them was a series about this character that we invented called the belt sanding hoodlum. So he was a guy who killed people with a belt sander. And we had a series of ideas with him. One, the first one was like um, belt sanding hoodlum wins um, or is awarded um, community something or other award. Like he's a, he's a pillar of the community. The, the the stories were always about him doing a great thing. So belt sanding hoodlum, you know, saves drowning child, stuff like that. And it was like, why is this newspaper writing about this serial killer always doing good deeds? Like, why does is he is are they his PR agency or something? Um, and so we really enjoyed that. And it was sillier then. This is before we made the change to being more a straight news parody. We did Emperor of Saturn to Enslave Us All. That was a big run for your lives. That was a big headline. I love that one. Just big, big blaring headline, run for your lives. Like that's funny to see on a newspaper when you're walking into the grocery store and they've got the free newspapers there. This big second coming size type. I enjoyed those sorts of headlines. There was one other runner that we came up with then, and that was this runner about Lucky the Chimp, the Onion's mascot. It was just this clip art of a chimpanzee that we found that we promoted as being the Onion's new mascot. And we put his picture everywhere and we made up a song for him. And one issue of the Onion had him almost on every page. We're just like really pushing this new mascot. Like we're really trying to brand the Onion with this chimp mascot. That's the impression we wanted to give people. And then... The issue after that was the last we'd, we ever were going to mention Lucky the Chimp. It was one little ad, one little box that just said, Lucky the Chimp, the Onions mascot is now for sale. That was it. And we just lo- we that tickled us to no end because we just wanted people to think, oh, my God, what did that chimpanzee do that made them all of a sudden hate him and want to sell him and never hear from him again? It was, it was a lot of fun. Did you get any bidders? No, I think everybody knew it was fake. <laughs> um, I don't want to say I hate to put you on the spot because I definitely don't hate this because I'm curious. Oh, no, but that's if you why had, I'm here for you to put if, me on the spot. Okay, that's great news. So if you had to come up with a headline for today's current climate, just you could, I mean, whether it's about coronavirus or whether it's about whatever, I don't know if you've already thought about this, but what kind of headline would you put on what's going on in the world right now? That is a very good question. And I've definitely thought about that because, you know, to me, onion headlines are really nothing more than one line jokes. And they're a certain type of one line joke that really works well in the context of being in a newspaper, because that was the format we were working with. They were working with the newspaper format. So that's the form that the jokes took. But my fundamental interest is in comedy and one-liners in general. So if I'm performing, you know, I'm going to do one-liners that are suitable for performing. I'm not going to do headlines. Or if I'm doing a comic strip, I'm going to do gags for a comic strip that aren't going to be like newspaper headlines. So my mind doesn't necessarily think in terms of headlines when it comes to jokes, unless I have to be writing something for The Onion. So in answer to your question, like I have thought a lot about what's going on now in terms of the my what's my comedy response, like what's my joke response to this world that we live in and everything that's happening. 
And I had so many thoughts about it, so much subtext, which is like the meat of any comedy. You know, what, what are you really trying to say about it? What are you trying to communicate about it? I kept writing down ideas and they kept piling up. And I realized it was, it was becoming bigger than just one joke. It was a novel. It was a whole novel. And so I started writing the novel and that's where all my ideas are going. And it's almost done. I'm like two chapters from being finished. And it's called The Joke at the End of the World. And it's about uh, a 12-year-old boy experiencing the apocalypse in 2020. It's told through his eyes. That sounds incredible. Is that is that a first announcement here on the podcast? Uh, I think I've mentioned it to a couple of other people. Uh, so I'm sorry you're not the first to hear. About oh, it. okay. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll be sure to to share your novel once it's released. Like, are, are oh, you planning you. on publishing this and and releasing it for for sale? Well, it depends. I hate to get into the weeds about the publishing industry, but I will for just a moment to explain. So I've been self-publishing books on Amazon for a while now, and I love it. Traditional publishing through major publishers is also wonderful because there are certain perks that come with that. And I can't decide which way to go with this book. I really want to get this book out soon. Like as soon as I'm finished writing it, I want it out because it's taking place right now. And it's going to be less relevant like six months from now, whenever... Simon and Schuster or whoever might be interested in it puts it out. If I can make a deal with a publisher where they put it out sooner, like put it up as a Kindle tomorrow, but then get the print version out whenever they can get it out, then I might do that. But if they can't, then I'm going to publish it on my own on Amazon. Like I'm fine either way. So we'll see what I, I just told my agent about it the other day. And so I'll send it to him when it's done and he's going to uh, shop it around and see what people think. It kind of depends on the response. Gotcha. Wow. Well, we, we look forward to that. Thank you. How long have you been writing it? Um, not long. Uh, about, I think, early July is when I started on So not even a month. Wow. I'm telling you, it's that 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. time period. You give yourself that, you can, you can write a novel in less than a month. Is that your daily routine? Pretty much, yeah. Is there anything else? Uh, I try to squeeze in some exercise and uh, I sit in the sauna every day around that time as well. And then I eat and then I do the rest of the stuff I have to do throughout the day. <laughs> Sounds I'm like glad I you know. eat. Very exciting routine. So is there one favorite thing that you've done in comedy? Obviously, writing and comedy have been a huge part of your life. Yeah. So I can look back and, and pick out some of the things I've done that I'm like, oh, that was my best work. That was really good. One of them was a radio series that I did with my friends in high school called uh, Dumb Adventures. And it was like a series of patriarchal white explorers who would go all around the world and just like explore and just be really dumb about it. Um, it's so silly and so goofy and stupid. And we're going to redo it as a podcast because obviously the recordings are very amateurish and old, but we're, we're working on that. Super excited about that. But unfortunately, it doesn't exist. So, <laughs> I mean, it's not public anywhere, so I can't really tell anybody where to go see it. Uh, my comic strip, Jim's Journal, I put out a treasury of that, which every, every collected strip. And I'm very proud of that. that. That was some good work. The Onion's first book, Our Dumb Century, I'm incredibly proud of that book. The Onion videos that we first started doing in the mid-2000s are spectacular. Some of my best work. I'm so proud of the team that we put together to make those videos. Will Graham, Carol Kolb, so many amazing people. Chris Kelly, who went on to become head writer of SNL. 
Chris Gethart was on there. A lot of amazing people. But anyway, there were so many videos that we did then that I watched to this day and just can't help but crack up laughing. And then I did a series of videos later. So there's this cartoon in The Onion called, well, it's an editorial cartoon. It's by this cartoonist named Stan Kelly. It's a parody of an editorial cartoon. And a lot of people don't know it's a joke. So Stan Kelly's not a real person. And the cartoons are not meant to be good. They're meant to be bad. But they're competently drawn. And Stan Kelly is like this old, out-of-touch guy who has all these really bad opinions about things. I helped the cartoonist, Ward Sutton, develop this comic strip. A few years ago, we did a series of videos called Behind the Pen. And those are all on YouTube. And I did the voice of Stan Kelly, just this horribly bitter, jaded old cartoonist who hates everything, trying to explain like the magic behind his cartoon. So he like shows you what he was thinking and how he came up with the ideas. And he's like a racist, bigoted, old world, like kind of an Archie Bunker, Donald Trump type and just bitter and hateful. And it's really funny. Those make me laugh every time I watch those. So I'm very proud of those. So that's a handful of some of my favorite stuff. That's awesome. Who, outside of, I guess, the, you know, the, the bully influence, I guess you brought up earlier about like trying to make the bullies laugh so they stopped bullying. Were there any yeah. other influences in your comedy, maybe a specific person that you had in mind? Yeah, I've never been the sort of person to see other comedy and think it was great and then want be inspired to do comedy. What inspires me far more is seeing comedy that's not done well, because that inspires me to do it better. So like Cracked Magazine, you know, Cracked is a big website now, but it used to be a print magazine. And it was on the shelves when I was a kid. And I just thought it was awful. And I that really inspired me. I was like, well, if they can do it, I know I could do better. So I know I can do it. And that really lit a fire under me. But if I had to pick like comedy people or comedians who I liked... I wouldn't say they like influenced me or inspired me, at least not knowingly. But David Letterman was definitely a big one. His late night show started when I was in high school. And it was a, like a revelation to me, the way he talked. He was so sarcastic all the time. And people didn't talk like that then. It was a very new kind of voice. It really matched the voice of my generation. I'm a Generation X person. And we're known as like these jaded slackers, you know, who are sarcastic about everything. And that Letterman really hit that on the head. And it was, it was, it was wonderful. And he had the best staff of writers. His, his writers were so funny. Uh, like Chris Elliott came from there and Adam Resnick and some, uh, some other amazing people. And I was a big fan of Andy Kaufman because he was so strange and experimental. I got introduced to Andy Kaufman through that documentary that Jim Carrey did through the, through the movie that they did back in the 90s. Have you seen that? Yeah. Did you see the documentary first or the movie? I saw the, the documentary first. Then that's that, so that interesting. prompted me to watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, that's a fascinating story. Jim Carrey, like becoming Andy Kaufman-ish. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think that role really messed with his head. Have you ever found yourself so in the weeds with things that you find yourself taking on a different personality through your work with The Onion? No, I think I've managed to keep one foot in reality most of the time. The thing that makes me a little crazy is the overwork. So when I was working on Our Dumb Century, that book took two years to make, and I didn't take a single break. I worked like 14-hour days for two years straight to get that book done. And it's such a monumental piece of work. It's like one of these books that like I, I wrote it and edited it 
and I still can open it up and find new things in it that make me laugh. There's like so many jokes per square inch and the type is so small. Like it's reproductions of fake front pages of The Onion throughout the 20th century. So in the early 20th century, the newsprint is really small and you practically need a magnifying glass to, to read it. And I love that. I absolutely love that. So I feel like a large question, maybe amongst young professionals, maybe just amongst American work culture in general is like, how do you balance work and life? But it sounds like, you know, we're talking about working nonstop and and needing a break. Do you think how much of working nonstop do you think is is necessary and just derived out of passion? Or do you think any sort of balance that people kind of like strive for is possible for the amount of success that a lot of people are searching for? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've thought about that a lot. You look at a lot of really successful people and they're obsessed. They're obsessed with what they do. Bill Gates was obsessed with programming computers. It's all he did. Michael Jordan was obsessed with playing basketball. That's all he did. Walt Disney was obsessed with making cartoons. It's all he did. And, you know, these people had either broken marriages or long suffering marriages where they were never home. This is like, it's a very common story among people who are really successful. But I think those stories resonate with people because those are the kinds of characters that we like to hear stories about. Characters that are passionate and obsessed. Like think of any movie you've ever seen. The protagonist is always obsessed. Like we like that. We want that. That's inspiring for us to see. Doesn't mean it works out great for the person who's living that life. Like they're they're getting uh, their wives are leaving them or whatever. Their husbands are leaving them. They aren't living healthy, balanced lives. So I went through like this big midlife crisis about 15 years ago where I realized that, and this happens in comedy all the time. Somebody succeeds doing comedy. And they look at their life and they realize the reason I got into comedy was so that people would love me. Like, that's why Robin Williams got into comedy. It's why John Belushi got into comedy. So many people do this. Chris Farley, they do it because they love the laughter. They love the feeling of people loving them. And they succeed. And then they realize they're really not loved. Like, it's, it's fake love. The audience can turn on you in a second if you do something they don't like. And the comedy doesn't actually fill your soul with real love. The only way you can get that is through another human being <laughs> like that you know and interact with. And so I that hit me big. I tried to purposefully spend more time like having a life outside of work. And I did that for like 10 years. And then I realized, nah, you know what? I'd really rather be working. So my, for I think everybody's different. I think some people like a work-life balance and they like working from nine to five and then going home. I don't want that. Like what I really want is to be working all the time. It's the thing that makes me happiest. And I do get a little alone time and I get a little like non-work time or time with friends, with people I love, family, etc. But I don't need nearly as much as other people. My balance is like 90-10 work to, to life balance. Whereas a normal healthy person might say 50-50. But I do think everybody has to figure out their, what their own ratio is. A normal healthy person. For... Yeah. <laughs> well, I like how you said it's different for everyone. I think that's it a is. good perspective. Yeah. And as long as you know who you are and what works for you, like, great, you know. I have a quick question that I think will resonate with a lot of people that are listening. And that's because I think you're, you hit it on the head with that. Not everyone's different in terms of their work life balance. And I've even heard some people address it 
as work-life integration. Um, Have you had someone working under you that doesn't necessarily fit your mold in terms of how you interpret the work-life balance? Maybe they're more of the nine to five person that is on in those eight hours, but then they like to have that time off. Did you have someone like that, that, you know, maybe you butted heads with a little at first? Uh, And then can you talk about how that was addressed if it did happen um, or, or how you would interpret a situation like that? Can you talk about how you would address that from someone that looks at working as I love to do it all the time? Sure. Yeah. So that's something that's very important to me because I always want the people working for me to be happy and fulfilled and really enjoying their work. And I strive to be the best possible boss I can possibly be. So if somebody and somebody works for me now who likes more of a 50-50 work-life balance, a kind of nine to five, and I totally work with that. She works for me from nine to five, and then I leave her alone after five and on the weekends. So that's super easy to do. There have been the opposite situation too. I think in the early days of The Onion, the people who The Onion attracted were more like me. They were more obsessed. And so they would come and they would spend all night working with me and they would never leave the office. One of those people I remember, I had to have a talk with him because I felt like he was getting burned out. And I forced him to go home (laughs) at one point because I could just tell I wasn't getting the best work I could out of him. And there are people like that who are workhorses. And you just, as a boss, you have to be in tune with people and what they need. And I would never, ever argue with someone and say, you should be working more, you should be working less or whatever, unless I saw that their mental health was clearly at stake. Because to me, the workplace is not a place to deal with people personally. We're all there on a work mission. We're there to do a job. And I'm not there to make friends. I'm not there to build a family or a tribe or any of that nonsense. I just want people to be healthy enough to be coming to work and doing a good job and, you know, being paid adequately so that they're satisfied and happy. I'll work with any situation. If somebody was amazing and they wanted a balance that's 10% work and 90% life, I would totally work with that person. And I probably do. I probably work with some freelancers who spend most of their time playing video games and every once in a while they'll do some web development for me. That's fine. I I have no problem with that. Awesome. Um, This is a little bit unrelated, but we've talked a little bit about the stories people want to hear and reading about different characters in the news or in comedy as well. And I'm just really curious how you see The Onion sort of integrated into society, like strictly from your perspective. It's really hard for me to see it objectively because I'm so close to it. Mm -hmm. So that is a tough one. It seems to me that it serves a similar function to something like a court jester. You know, like on TV, it would be the same as a late night talk show host's monologue. It's like, okay, we've lived our life. We've experienced some horrible things. Ah, now here is the court jester who's come in with their opinion on what's going on to make us see it from a different perspective, make us laugh about it maybe so we can feel better about it. I generally think that's, that's the role. Yeah. Well, Brayden, I think maybe we have time for one last question. So what was the greatest mistake you made that you learned the most from? Yeah. So I'll tell you what it is. So I told you earlier when I was young, I wanted to do comedy in every medium. And I was really fascinated by the film medium. Like I wanted to make movies. That was 
that was the the holy grail. That was kind of the peak of the art form for me. And so I made a bunch of movies. I made a bunch of short films. And I finally made a feature film when I was about 30. Very low budget, independent feature film that I wrote and directed and barely was able to put together. And it was very satisfying. It was a wonderful experience. It was incredibly draining, really took a toll on my soul and on my body. I didn't sleep for like a month during pre-production and part of production, but it came out. It went to some festivals. It won the Audience Award at the Austin Film Festival, and I had a great experience with it. I sold it to an independent distributor. It's called Spaceman, if anybody wants to check it out. And it's a science fiction comedy. I, I was thinking, okay, I'm on my way. I'm, I made a movie. I sold it. I'll make another movie. And so a few years later, I made a second movie. And in between there, I had an agent and a manager who were soliciting me jobs to direct major motion pictures. I got offered a couple of movies. I had to turn them down because I didn't think the scripts were good and I was being very picky. Uh, they almost picked me to direct the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie which breaks my heart because I think I blew that. Uh, Douglas Adams was a fan of my work at The Onion, and his wife was vetting directors for the project. So missed the boat on that one. But I, what I did was I, I was offered The Onion movie. The Onion made a movie, and I thought the script was awful, and so I turned that one down. I didn't write it. And I produced and directed and wrote another independent film called Bad Meat, which you can also find online. I had a very similar experience to Spaceman. It was incredibly draining, really took a toll on me. And it was after that movie that I realized, oh my God, I shouldn't be making movies. I'm not built for this. You have to be an extrovert to be a movie director because you're constantly dealing with people and talking to people and dealing with talent and massaging people's egos and making people feel better and managing people, making decisions. And I can do that. Like I can do it for short periods, but to do it for like a month or two is too much. Like I need to be at home alone writing. That's where, that's where I'm best. And so it was after the second movie where I realized that I really don't want that. That's too much. I shouldn't be doing that. And after that, I started an animation company because I do like making animated films, especially short films. I like short films because they don't take so long. So a feature just takes too long. By the time I'm done making it, I wouldn't have made the same movie because I've changed so much in that time. And animated movies are great because they're the introvert's way of making movies because you just sit around at home and write them and animate them. You don't have to go anywhere. Awesome. Uh, and that, so that's had a big inf impact on my life. I did sell that other movie for independent distribution. The distributor ended up stealing it from me and not paying me everything, changing the name of their company and skipping town. The whole independent film world is kind of a nightmare. It's a real racket. But yeah, I really figured out who I was through that mistake. Like I figured out I'm a hardcore introvert practically a recluse. And if anybody were to come and offer me like a movie or a TV show, I would have to turn it down knowing who I am. So I definitely learned that from it. Thanks for sharing. That's definitely awesome. And I know, sure. I know we said the last question was the last question. Oh, that's okay. I, I do have one more and I would regret if I didn't ask you because it will help our listeners out immensely. So we are a podcast for young professionals. Um, so like 22 to 24, 25 year olds. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give to young people uh, in regards to starting their careers and 
chasing after their dreams right now? What, what are some core things we should focus on as young people in the real world? So what I would say is something that I hear a lot from people in that age group already. So maybe this just bolsters a philosophy that they already hold dear. But my advice is to not worry about money because money is really not the important thing. It's not the thing that leads to happiness. Because I think back on my life and the times when I was happiest were the times when I literally had no money. I was happy because I was doing what I loved. And that's the true source of happiness. And we forget that in America because we're such a materialistic culture. We're so materialistic in America that we don't even realize how materialistic we are. We think we need to make a certain amount of money every year so we can have a nice apartment and a nice car. You don't need any of that stuff. Like I was homeless for almost a year when The Onion was becoming really popular. One of the happiest times of my entire life. And people take jobs that they hate just for the money, which is insane. Like it's better to work at Burger King to make enough money to cover your rent so that you have time to do what you love. So that would be my advice. Just do what you love and don't worry about the money. Great advice. And we appreciate you sharing that advice. Happy to do it. That's all Liv and I have for you today. We're very grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today. So thanks, Scott. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. 